everybody. I'm glad that you're here this morning. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I wanted to, to share a story with you. Corey had alluded to the story last week, but, you know, it's kind of crazy the way everything shook out. Obviously, I just baptized my daughter, and it was kind of crazy the way her salvation shook out. A lot of you guys know uh, I lost my dad February of uh, 2022, one, yeah, February of 2021, and so obviously that was, you know, I, it, as you guys know, I can't say enough about how much I love my dad and how much I thought of my dad, and so it was a great, great loss to our family, and, and it was in the midst of that grieving, it was, you know, however many months, seven, eight months later, where Morgan brings up Berkeley to my office where I was listening to one of my dad's old sermons, which I do regularly. And this sermon was probably, man, it was, I think it was from the 90s. And so she, she brings Berkeley up and she's like, Berkeley is like really ready to be saved. And I'm thinking, okay, wow, this is wonderful. And, and again, as I kind of joked about, we're, you're, the one thing you're kind of nervous about when you raise your kids in a Christian family is that they're going to kind of make this profession a little, a little fast, you know, and maybe not understand it all or something like that. And so I just kind of walked her through a lot of details about salvation. And man, she had all the right answers. And I was like, she gets it. And so anyways, she, she you know, we, we sat there in, on the floor of my office and, you know, tears running. And Berkeley calls on the name of the Lord to save her. And I get back to listening to my dad's message. And I hit play. And about 10 minutes later, he says in it, you know, the day, like the day I got saved, you know, it was September 24th. And I was like, one second. I paused it and I'm like grabbing my phone and I'm like, what's the day? September 24th. And I'm sitting there going, there's no stinking way that this just happened right now, that, that she's getting saved on the same day he did. And I didn't even realize it. Like, if you would have quizzed me on the day he got saved, I think I probably could have come up with it. But I had nothing in my mind at that moment that that was the day. And for him to say it in the sermon from the 90s, I'm just like, whoa. It was just really cool. It was a special moment, kind of like one of those moments where, you know, you're just feeling like... God is shining down on you for a second to be like, I got you. I'm still here, you know. And so it was, it was cool. I already knew that because the word of God told me so. But he just, showed, he just shined a little bit of an extra light down that day. So it's a, it's a pretty cool thing that we'll be, we'll be talking about for, for a long, long time. But right now we're, we're in the middle of a verse-by-verse study uh, of the book of First Thessalonians, for those of you who haven't been here, it, w- when we can, we like to preach it exactly the way that, that God wrote it, line upon line and precept upon precept. And, and sometimes what happens when you do that is we have weeks like we had last week, <laughs> where, where we talked about a bunch of stuff that wasn't a whole lot of fun to talk about, but were topics that were as necessary as they could possibly be to talk about. And, and of course, we dealt with the issue last week of, of sexual sin. But, but what we've uncovered over the last few months in, in, a, in a more broad sense 
as we've been studying this incredible book, is that this book of 1 Thessalonians, what it's in our Bible to do, it's here to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. Well, near the end of every single chapter, the authors of 1 Thessalonians, which are Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the authors mention something about the Lord's return. What should our lives look like when Jesus comes back? What should we be found doing? And, and we've been challenged with whether or not we're satisfied in our lives with where we are in our walk with the Lord right now. And would we be satisfied if the Lord came back right now? And let me just tell you, it could be any moment. That's an actual reality. That's not some sort of hypothetical, maybe if these 10 things happen, then the stage will be set for him to come back. No, it could happen at any moment. And so it, this book has taught us many truths, though. It's taught us many truths about discipleship and and the way that we should be evangelizing the way that we should be establishing people in the faith but but last week in the midst of of studying chapter four of the book of first thessalonians we we began looking at how we're to conduct ourselves with our bodies and and like i mentioned we got into the issue of sexual sin and then this week we're going to be looking at how we're to conduct ourselves with our brothers in the last few weeks the the verses we We've been in, man, we just keep coming back to this thing of being found holy and blameless and sanctified when the Lord returns. But, but before we dive into the verses this morning that, that we're going to be covering, I, I want to point out something to you about God that may or may not be obvious to you and may not be apparent. It, you see, it's important that we understand that God dispenses his grace in different ways at different times. You, you say, I, I'm not sure I believe that. I thought God never changes. Well, he doesn't, but the way that he operates does. The easiest example of this is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, unless you're going to go home today and you're going to sacrifice an animal in the backyard, and I don't mean that slab of ribs you're going to throw on the big green egg, Unless you're going to sacrifice animals in the backyard, then you understand this truth. You understand the fact that God dispenses his grace differently at different times. But despite that fact, I want to make sure that we understand, though he dispenses his grace differently at different times, which can sometimes make us feel like the God of the Old Testament isn't the God of the New Testament, We've got to understand that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he's still the same. And one of the key things that God desires in both the Old and New Testament is that he desires to have a group of people that are called by his name or or a group of worshipers that are called by his name that live holy lives. God's desire to have that is unchanged. He desires that, and he expected that out of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And he desires that, and he expects that out of those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ that comprise the church in the New Testament. He wants a peculiar people. He wants a people that are different than the unbelieving world, that will, that will shine his light to the nations. And, and, and what we began to see last week 
is that there are two specific areas in a believer's life where we ought to be completely different than the rest of the world. And they, they, again, they don't know God. We know God. And, and, and those two areas are the way we conduct ourselves with our bodies and the way we conduct ourselves with our brothers. And again, last week we spent the entire time talking about how we're to conduct ourselves with our bodies and how we're to abstain from fornication and abstain from the lust of concupiscence. And we studied what those things were. And those sins are in direct opposition to being holy. And now this morning we're, we're continuing on in chapter 4. But, but look, I want you to see as we dive into chapter 4, look again at how chapter 3 ends because it's going to help us better understand where we're going today. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verse 13, it's the last verse of the chapter and it says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And now the chapter changes here, but the context doesn't. Because at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 4 and verse 1, it begins with, furthermore then, or continuing with this same idea of the end goal of being found unblameable and holy when, before God when he returns, furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Okay, so chapter 3 ends, the context continues, and what happens in chapter 4 is, is the first eight verses of chapter 4 are still giving us truths to apply to our lives so that we can be found blameless and holy when the Lord returns. Now, last week, we, we finished verse 5 of chapter 4, and now the focus of the chapter is, is turning. Again, the focus of the chapter is turning from how we conduct ourselves with our bodies to how we conduct ourselves with our brothers, and that's what we're going to see this morning about our brothers. And the first thing that we see in, in the verses that we're studying this morning is, number one on your study sheet, our command to not defraud. Our command... To not defraud. And in order to, to get a running start here going into verse 6, I want us to start in verse 3 of chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting in verse 3. And this is some of what we've, we've covered in the previous weeks. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And that's where we ended last week. Now verse 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. It, you see, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're, they're coming off the heels of of talking about this sexual sin. So that is, that is certainly part of what's going on with this when he's talking about defrauding our brother. We're, we're not to defraud our brother. We're not to defraud our sister, letter A, in, in marriage. We're not to defraud our brothers and sisters in, in marriage because this thing of defrauding our brother, it's man, it's in direct connection with adultery. 
And, and we've seen that according to 1 Corinthians 6, man, there's a lot of sins that you can do in your life. But sexual sin is unlike any other sin. It, it, it's in a category. God puts this thing in a category all of its own because it's literally the only one, he says, where we're sinning against our own body. But, but here in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 4, that what we begin to see is that in addition to sinning against our own bodies, in the case of adultery, we're also sinning against our own brothers and our own sisters. The, the beginning of verse 6 says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother to, to, to go beyond. That's, a, that's an overreach. Right? You're, you're overreaching to get to something or someone that isn't your spouse. And God's telling us, man, this sexual sin, it's not only against your body, but it's against your own brother. It, it's against your own sister. It, this thing ought not so to be. How, how are you going to do that to your brother? And how are you going to do that to your sister? And, and in case somehow it eluded us last week as to just how serious God takes this thing of adultery. Do you remember what the penalty was for it in the Old Testament? It was far from a slap on the wrist, wasn't it? Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. It says, The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I think he's pretty serious about it. When Jesus died and rose again, y'all, that ushered in this age of grace that we're currently living in. So adultery no longer requires the death penalty. But God's wrath is being stored up for junk like this. And it will soon be unleashed on this planet on those who refuse to call on his name for salvation. You see, even though the consequences are carried out differently now than they were back then, God's still just as passionate about it as he ever was. God says, you're my people, and I've called you to be different, especially with your bodies, especially with your brothers. And committing adultery is a massive failure on both fronts. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is teaching us. We've been called to be different. And when you commit adultery, you sin against your own body. You sin against your own brother or sister at the same exact time. But defrauding our, our brother or sister, this thing goes a lot further than just adultery. And so next, I want us to see how letter B, we're not to defraud our brothers and sisters in anything. Letter B, in, in anything. Heading in, into verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 4, again, that context of sexual sin has been there. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they go as far to say in verse 6, don't defraud your brother in any matter. Well, that, 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 pretty, much, that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? There's not, a whole lot, there's not a whole lot left. He doesn't want us to do it in any way. And it's not just limited to sexual sin. There is no place for defrauding our brothers and sisters in any way. You see, here's the thing. There's a lot of different ways to defraud someone. There's a lot of different ways that we can overreach for things that don't belong to us. There are a lot of ways that someone can take advantage of their brother. Back in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.11, 
Here's what God commanded regarding our brothers. He said, you shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. Listen, from the beginning in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has desired for his people to not defraud each other and to take advantage of each other in any way. Here we see, don't steal. Don't do shady business deals. Don't lie to each other. Don't rob. And don't defraud or take advantage of each other in any way. That's not the character of God. And so that shouldn't be the character of his people. God's desire and his command to believers is that we don't defraud or wrong each other in any way. We don't defraud someone's character. We don't defraud or take advantage of someone's kindness. And we could go on and on with all the different ways to wrong and defraud our brother. Now, I imagine that there are some of us in here this morning and we're sitting here thinking, that's right, you tell those defrauders what's up. Not thinking for a second that we might be the ones doing the defrauding. And, and, you know, as I was sitting there studying this week, I, I couldn't help but think of why it would be that oftentimes those that are wronging and defrauding others seem adamant about the fact that they've done nothing wrong. You ever bumped into anybody like this or read about this or heard about this on TV? Have you, this, is, this, is, this is commonplace. It's just like, it's like they can't see it. And, and I think the book of Judges gives us some insight as to why that might be. It, it, it records for us, man, this book records for us some of the darkest times in Israel's history. It's a, we find the, the story of Samson in the book of Judges. And, and while he may be one of the most interesting men in the Bible and his story does have a silver lining, his story is a story of a guy who squandered unlimited potential. His pride and lust, it took him right down the path that it takes most people down. And as you know, his life ends as he's pushing over the two pillars of the building that he's, he's at, and he's standing in between these pillars that are holding up the building, and he pushes it over. These pillars fall. The building falls. It kills him. It kills everybody that's there. And as his life ends, what a picture. He is literally buried beneath the rubble of his own self-destruction. It's a tragic story. The, the book of Judges, it, it also contains one of the most disturbing stories in the entire Bible. But after all the fun that we had last week, I'm not even going to tell you about that one. You can figure that one out. I'll let you read that one and figure that out. But the, but the last verse of the book of Judges, listen, it essentially sums up the whole book and it, and it serves as a kind of epilogue to the book and, and it teaches us something that I find very interesting. Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And here's what I find so interesting. In a book that, that's filled with compromise and sin and dark stories, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 
Every man didn't do that which was wrong in his own eyes. And funny enough, in the midst of that, do you know what phrase we find seven times in the book of Judges? In the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2 and verse 11, 3 and verse 7 and 12, 4 and verse 1, 6, 1, 10, 6, 13, 1. Do we have a slide for that? Oh, oh, they're not all on one slide. Okay, that's a, every one of those, we find the phrase, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of those seven different times in the book, he says, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and on and on and on. And in a book, listen, characterized by Israel doing what was right in their own eyes, seven times it says they did what was evil in God's eyes. And what becomes clear is, is that when we do what is right in our own eyes, we inevitably do what's wrong in God's eyes. And, and, and when this person over here is doing what they think is right, and this person over there is doing what they think is right, and those two things that each of those people are doing are contrary to the other one, well, then which one is right? Riddle me that, Batman. You see, we, 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 get, we get forced into predicaments like that if we're living in a world that's void of absolute truth. But we don't believe we're living in a world void of absolute truth, do we? We believe that we live in a world where God left us a book that is God-breathed, perfectly preserved, and is complete without error, and is the source of absolute truth on this planet. And I say all of that to say this. I think sometimes the reason that we can defraud each other and we can wrong one another and then we can be listening to to someone like me flapping his gums about defrauding and wronging one another and be thinking about all the people that wronged us instead of the people we've wronged is because maybe we don't realize the defrauding and the wronging we've done because we were doing what was right in our own eyes. And if we aren't reading and we aren't studying the only source of absolute truth that's on this planet, well then, man, it's really easy to get removed from it and disconnected from it, and we begin to do what is right in our own eyes, and we may not even be realizing that we're doing it. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof, are the ways of death. It's possible that our behavior seems right when it's anything but right. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 12, it, it says, there's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. All of us are susceptible to thinking we're doing right when we're really not. That's what happens when we get too far from God's truth and we end up living and speaking our truth. The problem is, is in God's eyes, our truth, when it's disconnected from God's word, our truth is a lie. Yeah. So would you consider alongside of me this morning, and instead of only thinking about the ways that we've been wronged, 
Would you consider that maybe we've defrauded and wronged others? Maybe uh, maybe unknowingly, simply by getting ourselves far removed from the truth of the Bible? Maybe there's a brother or sister even in this room that you need to make something right with. Maybe one of our brothers or sisters you have unknowingly defrauded. Would you consider that this morning? God's called us to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor so that we can be found blameless and holy at the coming of the Lord. And God is teaching us that in order for that to be our reality, we're not to defraud our brothers or sisters in any way. Okay, now that I've challenged us to evaluate whether or not we've been responsible for wronging and defrauding our brothers and sisters, I do want to take some time addressing that, talking about our response to defrauding. I'm not trying to minimize the fact that it has happened to us, but what's our response? Number two, how we're to respond to defrauding. How we're to respond to defrauding. We have a slide for that? okay if we don't i just don't want to get tangled up how to re- how we're to respond to defrauding again first thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 6 it says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter okay well why why is that y'all because that the lord is the avenger of all such about three weeks ago i kid you not my one of my kids says daddy who was the first Avenger? I had no idea. I had a chapter and verse for it until I started studying this passage. Clearly, it's the Lord is the first Avenger. But, but, but here's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are teaching the church of the Thessalonians and what God is teaching our church. When we have defrauded, God is the... When we have been defrauded, I should say. When we have been defrauded... God is the one that will avenge that wrong. The Lord is the one that will avenge that injustice that took place. And it's important that we know that because do you know what that means for us? What God's trying to get us to see is is that because He's going to avenge us, it means that we're not to avenge ourselves. That's letter A. We're, We're not to avenge ourselves the lord is the avenger we're not to avenge ourselves because god is the one who's going to take care of that in the book of first thessalonians man there's plenty that god's called us to sanctification and and blamelessness and, and holiness to abound in love but do you know what he hasn't called us to in all of that he hadn't called us to in first thessalonians or in anywhere in the bible He hasn't called us to revenge. Nowhere. He hasn't called us to revenge or vengeance or to avenge ourselves. God says, I've got that. I'm going to take care of that. That, That's not for us. Clear back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35, God says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. It's coming. 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 17 says it this way. Recompense to no man evil for evil. And we're not supposed to get them back for what they did. In Psalm 94 and verse 1, the psalmist says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Again, vengeance doesn't belong to us. Now, now avenging ourselves or unloading on someone or getting somebody back for what they did to us, man, that, that comes really naturally, doesn't it? Like that, that is kind of the knee-jerk reaction. But listen, man, there are plenty of things that come very natural to us that aren't pleasing to the Lord. But, but, but just as we just saw, this thing of vengeance, it's it belonging to the Lord, though it's something that isn't really talked about a whole lot, this, this theme is repeated all throughout the scripture. This isn't some rogue verse that we're just trying to interpret what it really means. No, this is how it's always been in God's eyes. Another way that we're to respond when someone defrauds us or takes advantage of us or wrongs us is we're, we're to let her be, we're to let go of wrath. We're to let go of wrath. And Romans 12 is where we pick up a lot of cross-references as to how we're to handle being defrauded. And let me assure you, if that's not current, something currently going on in your life, just buckle up, buddy, because it's coming. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Paul says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. That's what we just got done seeing in the last point. But what should we do instead? But rather, give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So God's continuing to push this fact. We shouldn't avenge ourselves because vengeance belongs to him. But he adds this part about wrath. He says, give place unto it. When you give place unto wrath, what you're doing is you're saying, it's not my place to have wrath in my life. And so we, so we give it to God because it's His place and it's for Him to deal with. It's not our place. We've got to give place to it because it's not our place. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 gives us even more insight as to why it's such a big deal to let go of your wrath. It, it says, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Why? Neither give place to the devil. Here's what we have to be sure we're aware of, y'all. When we're hanging on to that wrath, we're giving place to the devil. In other words, we're giving the devil a place at the table. Pull up a chair. We, we, we give him a place to operate on us and start going to work. Ah, I can work with that. We're swinging the door wide open to come under attack. And God's trying to teach us, let go of all that. It's not your place. Give it to God. It belongs to him. And, 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 and though the wrath of God is a continual theme in scripture as well, like vengeance, wrath is never something that God desires for us to have in our lives. It's for God to deal with in his timing. So we're not to avenge ourselves. We're to let go of wrath and then let her see. We're to live peaceably with everyone. 
Letter C, to live peaceably with everyone. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, it says, If it be possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. It's kind of hard to do that if we're looking to avenge ourselves, isn't it? That's a, that's, a, that's a hard one to keep. If we keep avenging ourselves and the other people think they're avenging themselves, then where exactly does that end? This verse is teaching us that there may be some folks that refuse for there to be peace because even if you're not doing anything to them and you're not saying anything about them, they just won't let it go. That's definitely a very real thing. Now, now, typically, that's not the case. Typically, there is a way to resolve it, but we're just not willing to do it because it's not easy. That's why this verse says it may take as much as lieth within you to do it. It's like God saying, I know the way that that other person acts makes you want to grab them by the neck. I, he's, I, you know, I, I get that. You about want to strangle them, but as much as lieth within you, I want you to live peaceably with them. It may take all we've got to live peaceably with them, but God expects us to do just that if that's what it takes. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without, such, without, without which no man shall see the Lord. That's what God commands. Not avenging ourselves and carrying on the fighting and holding on to the wrath, but following peace with everyone. I, I love the way James puts it. Have you ever seen this? In James chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, but the, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. I love, what, I love when God gives us these little, little nuggets. Check it out. Purity comes before peace. These last few weeks, we've been studying all these things about how to walk and live a pure and sanctified life so that when the Lord returns, we're found blameless and holy in His sight. And what this verse shows us is that when we're living like that and living pure lives, it's then that God opens the door for there to be peace in our lives. Do you see that? God's wisdom is first pure, then peaceable. We won't be able to live peaceably with everyone like we've been called to live without purity in our lives. The next way that I want us to see that God wants us to respond to being defrauded or wronged or mistreated is to, letter D, kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. There's not a period after those first two words. That is not the recommendation for today. Kill them with kindness. We, we, man, we've all heard that phrase our whole lives. Did you realize it's a biblical principle, though? Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Well, man, that ups the ante, doesn't it? Yikes. We thought we were doing good just to not kill them, but now we're to kill them with kindness. Like, that, that ups the ante. For real, though, doesn't it seem reasonable when someone has defrauded us and wrongs us that we don't avenge ourselves, we don't have wrath, and we leave it at that. I mean, that seems like an accomplishment to me. 
Someone deserved to be slapped and you didn't slap them. That should be an accomplishment. But God says, no, I want you to bless them. Woo. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, starting in verse 43, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? All those that defrauded us and wronged us, God says, love them, bless them, do good to them and pray for them. And then Jesus really puts it in perspective in verse 46, doesn't he? He says, if you only love the people that love you, how are you even different in the unbelieving world? Isn't that what they do too? What even makes you different? Even the lost world does that. You say, well, you're still taking that thing too far. They need to know how they've wronged me. And if I treat them good after they've wronged me like that, then they kind of have the upper hand. And they think that they can treat me however they want. God says, no, that's not how this thing works. Romans, here's what you do in Romans 12, verse 20. Here's how it works. He says, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, killing them with kindness doesn't give them the upper hand. It gives you the upper hand. And it gives you the ability to overcome the evil. This is where the victory is found. By killing them with kindness. And we think the victory is telling them off and stomping around and treating them like they treated us. But that's not where it's found. My mom is here this morning, and she taught me so much in my life and has been such a godly example my whole life. And, and one of the many things she taught me was about this. I'd, I'd come back from school, and some kid was acting a fool or whatever the case was. And, of course, I wanted to react like normal. I wanted to avenge myself. But she used to tell me something that really stuck with me, and she said, don't give them the privilege of allowing them to control the way you act and kill them with kindness. That always stuck with me. You see, when we act a fool and avenge ourselves, we think we're getting them back and getting the upper hand. But all we're really doing is allowing the one and the wrong to control us and allowing them to cause us to stoop to their level. And what happens is, is that now we're both wrong. They're wrong for how they acted. We're wrong for how we reacted. The victory is found in overcoming the evil with the good. And man, I, I, I get it. You know, none of, none, of, none of what we've covered about how we're to respond to those who defraud us, I mean, none of that is, is easy. But listen, this is what God has called us to do, and he has empowered us 
to be able to do. He wouldn't call us to something that he wasn't willing to empower us to accomplish. You know what's so ironic about going about to avenge ourselves like we naturally want to do? When someone's defrauded us and we carry out our own wrath and we avenge ourselves from someone that's taken something from us, ironically enough, when we're doing that, what we're doing is we're defrauding God because now we're taking something from Him that belonged to Him. Vengeance and wrath belongs to God. And you know what else? Everything I've just explained about how we're to respond when we're wronged and respond when we're defrauded, it's exactly how Jesus has already set that exact same example to us. Would you look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19 with me? Man, this is a passage that has been near and dear to my heart and has spoken to me many times in many ways, especially over the last couple years. Please listen closely, would you? For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And here's the bottom line of the whole matter, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not. And listen, just like we've been called to, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You see how Jesus provided us the example of every single thing that we've been covering this morning? Everything we've been looking at, it's just simply do what Jesus already exemplified for us in his life. So if we're going to be found blameless and holy at the coming of the Lord... We can't defraud our brothers and sisters. When we're defrauded, we need to respond how Jesus did when he was defrauded. And then next, I want us to see, number three, what we've been called to. Number three, what we've been, what we've been called to. Now, we, we've been seeing some of what we've been called to, and God kind of sums it up for us again here in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 4, For God hath not called us, unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And, and listen, God is re really repeating himself. He is really bearing down and reiterating some of what he's already mentioned. Just, just a few verses earlier in this exact same chapter, verses 3 and 4, God says in both verses, I want you to be sanctified. Being sanctified, it, it's set apart. It's being set apart as holy and being set apart as pure. The last verse of chapter 3, like I've mentioned, calls us to be blameless and holy at the Lord's return. So this is the fourth time now in eight verses that we've been covering that God has repeated the fact that his desire is the same as it's always been to have a people group that are called by his name, that are sanctified and holy. And listen, God doesn't have a volume button on his book like we think of with our TV remotes. And so God turns up the volume by repeating himself. I think four times in eight verses, 
I think that's repeating yourself. He desires for his people called by his name to not be unclean, but be holy. God's always been after that. Look at what God said to Moses in Leviticus 19 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Peter confirms that's what God's always been after and is still after in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 when he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. God wants us to be holy because we're called by his name and he is holy. God pushes it all throughout the Old and New Testament. This is no small matter. This thing of being clean and holy, when, when the Lord comes back, man, it can't be understated. It's a, it's a big deal to God, and so it should be a big deal to us. God uses clean vessels. But sadly, there are those that just will not heed God's call to holiness. Just, he just won't do it, just refuse. They reject it. And as Paul, Silas, and Timothy continue writing to the Thessalonians, they, they give us some insight as to who it is that's actually being rejected when these truths are being rejected. And that's number four on your study sheet. The, the one that is really being rejected when truths are despised. The one that's really being rejected when truths are despised. You see the next verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. Listen as I read, it says, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. In other words, those that despise or those that are rejecting these truths that we've been covering and that we've been studying this morning about not defrauding our brother and, not living holy, and about living holy lives, those that do that, they're ultimately despising and rejecting God. Now, I get it. There's no doubt that when we defraud or wrong someone, we are defrauding and wronging them personally, yes. But though we're doing that, what we're ultimately doing is we're defrauding and wronging God. When we don't submit our lives to the truths that we've seen this morning about not defrauding our brothers and sisters and not... We're, we're, we're not just showing our contempt and not just showing our disdain for our brothers and sisters. We're showing our contempt and we're showing our disdain for God. Because it was God who said, love your neighbor as yourself. When we refuse to do that, just remember, it was God that commanded that. In fact, Leviticus 19.18, God says, that exact thing and, and ties together much of what we've been studying this morning when he says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord's. When we defraud our brothers or sisters and we avenge ourselves when we've been defrauded, just remember, it's God that we're ultimately sinning against. It's awful to sin against our brothers and sisters. Man, that's a, that's, a, that's a terrible thing. It's worse to sin against God. 
And, and, and we've been seeing just how serious God takes all of this. When, when talking about adultery in Hebrews 13, 4, the, the Bible says, marriage is honorable in all, in the bed undefiled. In other words, marriage is the God-ordained relationship where we're to enjoy intimacy. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge, and it's because he's the one who's ultimately getting sinned against. And you know, this is something that, that Joseph actually understood really well. It, this, this story should be fresh on your mind because I, I talked about it a little bit last week, but I left a few pieces out. If you recall, again, you know, Potiphar, he's, a, he's an Egyptian that was an officer of Pharaoh. Potiphar puts uh, Joseph in charge of literally everything that he owned. God blessed everything Joseph did. Joseph prospered. Joseph was good looking. Joseph was the man. And Potiphar's wife thought he was too. And, and so Potiphar's wife, he throws herself at Joseph and he, man, he takes off out of there like we talked about last week and leaving his coat even in her hands. But have you ever noticed what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife in the midst of these insane advances? Have you ever seen this? Potiphar's wife comes right out and asks him to lie with her. And Genesis 39 and verse 8 says, But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. In other words, Joseph said, your husband trusts me so much that he doesn't even know what I'm up to around here. And he trusted me with everything that he has. Then Joseph goes on to say, please listen, there is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. Because thou art his wife. He's saying your husband has put me in the highest position in the house. And, and you as his wife are literally the only thing that he's withholding from me in his life. And, and so, man, if I'm just reading that, it would seem to me that the next thing Joseph would say would be this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against your husband Potiphar? But that's not what he says, is it? You see, he understood how this whole thing shakes out. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, though, he would most certainly be sinning against Potiphar if he were to have given in the, to, to this seduction. And, and last week, we even saw he'd be sinning against his own body to do that as well. Those, though, though those things are true, Joseph understood that ultimately he'd be sinning against God. And that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy want to make sure the church of the Thessalonians understood and God preserved and inspired the book of 1 Thessalonians so that Cali Harbin Baptist Church would understand the same. When we defraud our brothers and we walk in uncleanness and we defraud and we avenge ourselves, the one we're ultimately sinning against is God. You know why vengeance is reserved for God, like we talked about earlier? Because the sin was ultimately committed against Him. That's why it's His place. 
Yeah, they sinned against us, but ultimately they sinned against God. That's why vengeance is his. I want to challenge you this morning. Can we take a second to evaluate this morning if, if there's any way that we have been defrauding our brothers and sisters? Man, it's so easy to see it when other people wrong us. But can we reevaluate and see if maybe there are just some areas in our lives where our emotions or, man, whatever the reason have caused us to stray and have some distance between us and the Word of God, and maybe we've wronged others unknowingly? I get it. Sometimes we can wrong others and not even realize that we've done it. For those of us who have been on the receiving end of, of being wronged or being defrauded, how we respond to that? How, how, how's that going? Have we let go of trying to avenge ourselves? Have we let go of wrath? Are we doing everything we can to live peaceably? Are we treating those that wronged us with kindness? Listen, y'all, we've been called to be found holy and blameless at the Lord's coming. And God says, this is how you're to conduct yourself towards your brothers if you're going to be found that way. Because this thing is so much bigger than us. It's about the glory of God. And when we reject these truths, it's God who's ultimately defrauded. Father, we love you. I, I thank you for this group of people who has a heart to hear the truth and who has a heart to respond to the truth. And what I'm asking you, God, is that we would just take a second and we would just evaluate and reevaluate where we're at with things, God. Are we... Are there places in our lives that you're, that you're pointing to right now that we need to deal with before we walk out of this room this morning? Are there, are, there, are there people that maybe we've unknowingly defrauded that we need to get in your word and maybe reconsider some of our own behaviors? Maybe there are people who have defrauded us and we're like, wow, that is nothing like the way I respond to being wrong. God, would you, would you, could, could we, we just want to come before you right now and we want to deal with that. We want to get that thing right. We want to understand from your word how you've called us to behave, God, because our desire in this place is to be a body of Christ with members in it that are holy and blameless when, you're, when you come back. We're looking forward to that day, God. When you show up on this planet, I pray that's how we would be found, holy and blameless in your sight. And we love you. In your name we pray, amen. Stand and sing together. Help me sing.